The inestimable value of every human person lies in who they are. Human life matters simply and totally because it's human. Reclaiming a properly oriented understanding of human rights and human flourishing means also embracing the economics of dignity. Today we speak with Anna Claire Noblet. Anna Claire is a student at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama, and she's been interning with Americans United for Life throughout the summer. We speak with Anna Claire about her optimism on the human right to life, on her time in the nation's capital, and on the need to embrace the economics of dignity. I am Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. We're thrilled to be joined today by Anna Claire Noblet. Anna Claire, you've been doing such important and I hope think fun work for Americans United for Life this summer. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on today as a real guest. I have had an extremely fun summer and I can't wait to share more about that. And we've also got Noah Brandt. Tom. Anna Claire, she's a rock star. She's a superstar. She's done such great work for us. Uh, tell us, Anna Claire, this is something we like to do with the podcast, uh, do a little bit of navel gazing. What did you know about America's United for Life before you started interning here? And uh, you know, what have you found out since you've been here? We've, uh, oh, this we've, is a good question. I know. We've been here for 50 years. This is our 50th anniversary at AUL. Uh, what did you know coming in? You know, coming in, I had heard that this was a leading organization in actually changing American law at the state level and here at the federal level. And I had just heard great, great, great reviews from people who are in the DC um, kind of network of, of organizations who are all about furthering the, the pro-life movement. And um, yeah, from, from people in the DC community of organizations who are, are so passionate about the human right to life and working on that on different sides of the issue. Americans United for Life is really unique in its ability to have experts who are just so sharp and who know the law so well and are actually able to to build coalitions, not only here in DC, but in state legislatures all around the country. So mm. I had really not heard much about it. And, and now, looking back that that one positive review that I got from someone who was helping me find an internship has proven true. And I really can see the impact of AUL all across the country. It's incredible. That's awesome. Uh, you know, you are coming from Alabama, you're going into finish your last year of your undergraduate studies, but you have been in the pro-life fight long before you came to us. Tell us about you do a podcast like on your own uh, with other students at your school. Tell us about that and other pro-life things you've done before you came to AUL. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, let's see, the spring of 2020 was when I finally acted on this dream I had had for a while of starting a podcast with other students to really just ask questions that we had about politics and what 
what kind of these big words we were seeing on the news. It was, it was kind of a, around the time where I was like impeachment and just, just all kinds of big words that I felt like people around me and even myself had a lot of questions about. And everyone know, in DC, of course, pretends to know what all that means. Right, it's not right. true. Exactly. So we make I'm, ourselves feel smarter by acronymizing things. You know? Exactly. If there's an acronym for it, then you understand it. Yeah. So yeah. I was a, I was a political science student and had friends just going, why would you study that? I mean, it's so confusing. <laughs> and, and so I started a she podcast. She seemed normal on the surface. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. You crazy person. So I started a podcast called the dual citizen and I'm a Christian. So for me, that means getting to um, kind of think about how policy and politics can be an avenue to show care for my neighbor. I mean, policies affect people's lives. And so tell us about the name. It's a cool name. What, is, what does the yeah, name dual citizen, the mean? dual citizen. So, so not necessarily, I, I am only a citizen of America, um, but kind of in kind legally of, speaking, legally <laughs> speaking, but in this, the, it's the idea is that, um, you know, I, I am an American, but I am also as a Christian, I believe I'm a citizen of kind of this coming kingdom that really informs the way I live this life. And I am, yeah, that's, that's a lot of why I'm pro-life is that I believe that um, we have innate dignity because I believe in a creator who created people with love and with, yeah, with dignity that means we have purpose and an ability to form relationships and to cultivate things, uh, cultivate the earth and cultivate more relationships in the earth that can lead to flourishing. And so the first episode of my podcast was about being pro-life and not in really the sense that I had even heard growing up, but in the sense that being pro-life is a lot more even than than caring about abortion um, and seeing the end of abortion. It's actually a, a kind of worldview that affirms what a human is, what a person is, why a person is worthy of me being kind to them or why a, a baby is worth having. But, but it extends past abortion into right. this kind of whole life pro-life ethic, right? So talked to the guy named Herbie Newell who, who wrote a book about whole life pro-life. And this was revolutionary for me because I was kind of tired of just being pro-life um, because of my faith, if that makes sense. Like I, I see so many other reasons why, even for someone who is not a person of faith. And I think this is really where we have to extend a lot of the arguments that people typically associate with, with being pro-life, even though, yes, I do affirm a lot of those innate dignity kind of arguments, it extends far past that for me. Well, right. And it's so important too, right? Because on the one end, you know, whatever your faith background, certainly Christians lived through for, for thousands of years now, the experience of, of, let's say, you know, secular or otherly oriented societies who don't want there to be, you know, they don't want somebody to think of themselves as a dual citizen, mm, whatever right. they think their telos yes. is. Why? Because they view it as a threat to the order, right? It's like if, if you view yourself as responsible to something greater than whomever claims to be the greatest civic authority, well, that means they can't control you. It means they can't dictate things to you, right? Mm -hmm. And on the other end, when we talk about, you know, convictions as Christians, we're all Christians in this room, speaking about, you know, our convictions on the human right to life, well, we realize too, people peg us, right? They say, well, you are just pro-life because your faith says so. 
And it's like, well, that's a, that's a strong motivator. But our faiths say so, not because of revelation. It's not something we received in sacred scripture or that we believe God spoke through that scripture that we're pro-life. It's natural reason. Yes. That's, that's where Christianity gets its pro-life conviction from. Right, so that's you know it's the, the classic yes. of like where does Jesus talk about abortion in the Bible? And it's like, <laughs> does he talk about the human person? And what are the what are the All principles the of basic All reason we can extrapolate from that? Right. So right. it's like it's you know, we are the people talking about reason and science, and yeah. uh, and we're doing that as Christians. Yes. Yes. You, you've had a lot of success, uh, Anna Claire. I know you you can talk about you've, you do with other students uh, at your school. It's really really well done. You've had some great guests. I know you, Cinder Ben Sass, came on your show at one point. Uh, we did. But have you? Uh, what have you taken from the experience of doing this project with other people and being being able to talk about these deep and important issues with your colleagues? You know, it's given me a lot of hope for the future. It's given me a, a space to ask questions unashamedly. I think I think my generation, I have a lot of great things to say about my generation and a lot of hope for the future, but we kind of take things at face value. We, we're, we're satisfied with a tweet informing our opinions or decisions and, and satisfied with maybe a pundit uh, giving us giving us everything that we think. And so I found a few students and found a community within the, you know, the people that the podcast has reached who aren't really settling for that and are willing to dig in a little deeper, whether at, that's by um, talking with an author and reading his book or her book and, and coming around to talk about it and unpack it and, and critique and affirm things in it. And and or paying attention to global events is something we've right. been trying to do recently. Just saying, you know, let's look outside of ourselves in this immediate context and, and what's really happening to neighbors around the world who, whose, whose stories are not as immediate, but who we can really think about and, and yeah, try to work on, on behalf of in whatever ways we can just as students. And right now that's learning. Yeah, and we're uh, we, you know we, we're blessed here at AUL that you brought that experience uh, to to this work because you've been doing a great job. Now there's a we've have a whole gaggle of interns this summer. Everyone was fantastic. We've heard from from some other ones. Abby Balmert, uh, me and Anna Claire interviewed on Casa Teresa and her great pro life work at the Pro Life Caucus. We got to hear Tessie's voice when mm -hmm. she read Hills Like White Elephants with Tom. Which Tom, you did a great job. I think you have a future as a voice actor. Oh, thanks, Noah. You know, I'll, I'll put myself up on uh, Fiverr. We'll see how it goes. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but. Anna Claire, you, you've kind of been doing different work than those other interns. You're the only intern who's been working on sort of the pro-life communications team. Uh, what type of work have you been doing this summer with us? It's been a lot of new experience for experiences for me. I started out writing, well, my first week here, I got to watch our president and CEO, Catherine Glenn Foster, talk with um, reporters in her office and do some do some live stream interviews about the Women's Health Protection Act and and really honestly get kind of hammered by <laughs> by the reporters who were just not sympathetic to our side of the issue. Yeah, you see reporters have an agenda, right? They, it was interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. But then we got to go over to one of the Senate office buildings and hear her testify against the Women's Health Protection Act. And that was really what launched me into, wow, there are some really pressing policies and Supreme Court cases that are that are huge landmarks in this movement. I mean, AUL has been around for 50 years. There's been 
a lot of big cases that we've been involved in, but this is still happening. And it's just, we are, we're really at the climax with, um, with some of these policies that are, that are trying to be passed through Congress. And then also with the Dobbs case coming up in the court. But my first project kind of was writing a reflection op-ed piece on the Women's Health Protection Act and, and letting the sass come through as an offended woman. Um, who, it's offensive. That act is offensive. That it is. Yeah. It is. I, I think that women do deserve better and they deserve better. Your piece wasn't offensive, though. Your piece was informative. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. So I got to do that. I have gotten to help write some press releases and just some, some statements from whether it's Clark Forsyth or Catherine Glenn Foster. I mean, it is really a team effort here. What, what have and you learned, Anna Claire, about the way that we try to communicate in the pro-life movement? And then what, what have you learned about, uh, you know, when we're speaking to the media, we're being we're going through these filters. There's so many, 90% of the mainstream media are going to be pro-abortion, these reporters. And we're trying to be to go through that filter and get across our message to the American people, the message for life. What have you kind of learned in that way? That's a really good question. And I have been pleasantly surprised by the way that AUL engages media. I mean, writing an op-ed or something, you're always going to kind of have, it's an opinion, right? You can kind of come at it with a little more emotion, but, but I think these reporters and the people that we're working with who may not agree with us are often surprised by our tone and rhetoric and we, we are able to to take an approach of, you know, we really do want to care for women. And this is just a kind of a, we just kind of see caring for them a different way that you do. And we we really think that, that abortion is something that is, that is not quite as liberating for women as it's been advertised to be. And, and it's not, yes, it's about this child, but it is about the child's family and the lasting impacts. And, and I think people can see the compassion and the concern in the way that AUL communicates and in Catherine's story and in um, the lives of lawyers like Clark who have, who have really, really looked at the law and he's can devoted his entire life, devoted to, his his entire entire life to it because yeah. it is in unjust. Um, some of these decisions that have been made. And so I, I think there is a compassion and, a you know just just truly heartfelt um commitment to to things that are good for mothers and families and and i think that's kind of hard to argue with sometimes one of the fascinating things i think too is is going back you know uh, a year or two ago Catherine glenn foster spoke at the national constitution center she spoke on uh roe of course but also on you know where the supreme court might be heading with it and it was uh, Kitty Colbert, who was the attorney who argued the pro-abortion side in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, who said directly, you know, that she thought that the Supreme Court would reverse Roe v. Wade um, in the very near future. And so uh, we, we certainly may get an opportunity with that with Dobbs. But one of the things that struck me, you know, was was seeing and, and being able to speak to her afterwards and uh, realizing that, you know, uh, Ms. Colbert and Clark Forsyth and so many of the folks who have been involved in these issues, whether for or against whichever side actually know each other. Right. Uh, you know, Mary Ziegler, you think another great, um, you know, scholar and historian of, of the, uh, abortion issue, um, you know, has a working relationship with the people on both sides of the aisle. She engages with people on both sides. of the aisle. You just look her up on Twitter to see that in action. Um, 
different than than maybe some of the people do today, where I think like the average person from NARAL or the average pro-life advocate may not have those depth of relationships. I wonder, you know, what that does long-term, but I think that's definitely a value add that AUL has. I know, you know, we were both in a meeting recently where Clark was able to speak from firsthand experience about like, well, back in 1985, yeah, you know, and it's like that, that respect Something matters else. in politics. Most yeah. places don't have that. Yeah. And it's, it's not a, a fleeting issue. You know, it's not a, a, a hot topic thing that everyone's really excited about right now for six months or something. I mean, there's so many of these waves of, of emotion that get people really fired up about a social issue. And the people that I have observed in the pro-life movement, especially who've committed their careers to this, I mean, it is, it's pretty much the most unpopular thing they could do with yeah. their career as a lawyer or something. But it right. is, it's just a non, it's just, it's just not even an option to do anything else until things change. And, and for me, no matter what I do, I think, and I've observed this with these other interns, they don't all know that they're, you know, going to be lawyers. We not, we don't really know what life holds, but we know that one way or another, we're going to be involved in this issue and we're going to be trying to engage women and, and tell them they're not alone. There's a great book, by the way, uh, I want to promote here. And, you know, we've spoken in the past with the author, Erica Bakiaki, just had uh, this month uh, come out a great book called The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision. And she goes through, you know, from the beginning, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, tracing kind of the history of, of feminism, um, but the vision for, for rights and responsibilities. And I think Erica's book is a great, um, you know, a great kind of prism by which to see the light on these issues. Um, as we're talking about them. Yeah, I'd recommend that to, I mean, to especially my peers who rightfully so are passionate about, you know, the feminist movement. And, and I think there's a unique way that this movement can fit in. And and it's it's a much more bipartisan issue, I think, than it seems. Because, like I said, this isn't something that only a person with a religious background can get behind. I mean, it is it is it should be personal for all of us because it's abortion makes a statement about our own worth and, and defines, you know, the, the, the value of our lives based on what we do or with the situation we're born into and if we're wanted or not. And, and I think that should really strike a very personal chord for all of us. And, and it's, it's not as, not quite as partisan as, as it seems. Oh, and that's Erica's story too, right? Remember that, no, when we were talking about her, uh, when we were talking with her, uh, was, uh, was her own experience, right? Going from, you know, basically functionally atheist, yeah. uh, pro-choice to uh, pro-life, you know, seeing, seeing those, those principles exactly they're talking about, Anna Claire. It's a powerful story. You know, Anna Claire, I wonder, so you have roots in Alabama, which is a great state. Uh, our listeners know I'm, I'm a proud Missouri man. Uh, maybe less know that I spent uh, quite a few years living here in Washington, D.C., and I still uh, come back and see my colleagues in the office sometimes, and it's an interesting place to live and work. I wonder what your experience of D.C. has been like. We're kind of in the, you know, we're in the summer of 2021. It's uh, COVID is still having some impact on the city. I've, I don't know if it's fully back to what it was like, but at least when I was here, uh, especially in contrast to Missouri, where I grew up and now live, it's a harsher place. And it's a place where most people you meet on the street are not going to agree with you, especially on abortion and probably on a whole host of other issues. What's DC been like for you? You know, I've been encouraged because I've gotten to be surrounded by people who are from such different backgrounds, but are all passionate about advancing the human right to life. And my other, my fellow interns at AUL are from 
Massachusetts and Arizona and these places where they're much more alone in, in this, this way of thinking and this worldview, I guess you could say, than I've ever experienced. And so I know we're all very, very happy to have each other going forward yeah. and just feel, you know, surrounded by people who, you know, we're always going to be cheering each other on. And like I said, we're going to stay involved in, in this, in this effort one way or another. So that's been great. I, I think the, the community isn't quite as hostile as I expected just from always, you know, seeing DC on TV or yeah. something like always that. So I've been talk about it on podcasts. Right, yeah, right, right. But <laughs> I, I will say I, I had an experience, um, some interns and I, we decided to, try sidewalk counseling with someone from AUL who had invited us and that experience you know we we really just went to kind of be present we aren't you know we weren't super trained it was just kind of a and this this is this is the large Planned Parenthood in large plan yes yeah. the only Planned Parenthood in DC yep. and and we just kind of went to see you know we've been we've been looking at all these statistics we've been writing about this we've been researching we've learned so much from the staff here who's invested in us but what is this really like in this city and 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 maybe we can just be there and be a smiling face for a woman who's walking into one of the hardest things she's ever experienced and, and we didn't know what would come out of that but it was it was tragic it was the first time i've ever really been in a situation where i could see and feel and hear in the comments of people walking by this divide between worldviews, like I said, and, and we had people praying outside the clinic and, and there were a lot of different kind of personalities there, even on the pro-life side, um, and different, different strategies. And we were just kind of, like I said, there observing available smiling face, hoping to maybe make a friend who needed a friend. And, and there were people who were volunteering at Planned Parenthood who, who were there to, to make sure women don't have to, to talk to, pro-lifers if, if they don't want to, but people would walk by on the street and they would either curse at the pro-lifers or, or, oh, wow. or I mean, even one person spit at, at a group of pro-lifers, um, or they would look at the Planned Parenthood volunteers who are escorting these women and say, thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for what you're doing. And, and it was just, and, and there weren't many conversations being yeah, had between the, the two sides. Yes, yeah. it was very real. And and finally, at, at, towards the end, I did get to have a conversation with a Planned Parenthood volunteer. And, you know, that moment was great because it just finally acknowledged the humanity between us. And, you know, we both thought we were doing what was right. And that was, that was a sobering moment, but... You were correct though, yeah. But I, I was I was correct. Um, I, I was correct. I, I think. Can you help me understand? I mean, volunteering for Planned Parenthood, right? I know I've seen the same thing, right? In Philly, there are the same folks out there in front of the Planned Parenthoods in Center City. It's always blown my mind. I mean, it's to me, it's like volunteering to like go help Coca Cola with their deliveries. It's like this is a multi million dollar organization, organization, profitable, right? And you're volunteering for them to to help them do what, right? To to protect them from hearing a brother or sister to reach out them to them from young Anna Claire who has a smile. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not sure. And I, I think there, I think that's a really scary moment for, for women. I mean, I cannot imagine being in their shoes and I think, you know, maybe I, 
the way I look at these volunteers is they're hurting, you know, they, they're trying to maybe justify a decision they've made and justify a way of life that they've been living that relies on abortion. And there were, there were men volunteering. It wasn't just women. And, and, and I'm just, I'm just confused, you know, but I think I saw a lot of pain in them that, that really just kind of points to once you, once you kind of get sucked into this, this funnel that Planned Parenthood has created. I mean, if you're wrong, you're really wrong. You know what I mean? If you've had abortions and and you, and and you've been perpetuating this, supporting this, celebrating it, and then you realize that it's wrong. It's easier to double down. It's much easier to double down. And, and so that's kind of what I saw in those volunteers. And and that's why (laughs) there's not a whole lot of room for persuasion if you're that far in. But, um, but yeah, DC is, is a place where people are here because they're passionate, honestly. I mean, it's not, it's not a hundred percent, um, people are here for politics, but it is a place where you learn a lot because people speak what's on their mind and share. And, and, and that experience was a unique one. I haven't, I haven't faced a lot of opposition, especially being from Alabama and being pro-life. It's a pretty, um, accepted, accepted opinion, but that was an experience that, made the fight really real and I, I hate to even use the word fight like I don't, you know it's like th- but this was Absolutely a struggle though. yes and fight? yeah yeah it's it's a it's a battle for a fight for the conscience of our nation it is a fight for the conscience of our nations and it's a battle for who who's holding life in their hands that's and, right that's right and, and it clear. was just so clear that day so I'm glad you did that mm-hmm. I think you made a difference being there you're a deep thinker you're also an economics student so you, you have a, a mind for numbers as well and you've been telling me about this concept you have you're doing some research on it right the economics of dignity tell us about it oh the economics of dignity dignity I am so excited about this and it really comes from just so you know so I shared I've, I've kind of grown up pro-life um, and, and been thinking about ways to make that more than a issue that I vote on or something. You know, I mean, I, I've, I've been really wrestling with this for a few years now. And I do think it's something that extends past party lines um, to, to all different kinds of human dignity issues and, and, ways of, and ways of defending the defenseless. But I, I'm sitting in class this past spring, and um, I will, I will shout out my professor, Dr. Cardin at Sanford, and and he, I'm sitting there, and I had I had switched to to economics because I just wanted to be able to actually l- look at numbers instead of. I don't know. I don't know. Political science is just kind of a lot of opinions. Yeah, and you so, realize there's not actually that much science necessarily, right? <laughs> right, right. It, it's a lot of political and, and you not get some theory. All you that get some much Excel, science. So, Excel sheets, yeah. yeah, so I'm like, please, I just want to be able to prove something, not even prove, but just support an idea with a graph or something. So that's what I'm learning how to do. And, and I'm learning about these growth models. And if anyone has a background in economics, I'm talking about Robert Solo. I'm talking about. Paul Romer, I'm talking about Charles Jones, and and these are guys who have looked at the big picture of economics, macro, macro level, and said, what drives growth? Why are we flourishing so much more today than we were even 200 years ago? How have our lives gone from short and brutish and just survival uh, a couple hundred years ago to 
the rich and, and thriving lives that we have today comparatively, right? Still brutish, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in DC, but um, but yeah, so so they, they've examined this. They're trying to kind of crack the code and you might think, oh, it's all of these these um, resources that we have now, right? And And have we really had a different amount of natural resources during the past thousands of years? No. Um, so what is it? Is it, is it having, you know, fewer people per unit of said resource? No, our population is booming, right? Um, or at least has been for the past couple hundred years. So, so what is it? And the thing that they all come to the conclusion, you know, that is the driving force of economic growth is ideas. And ideas come from people and people have minds that contribute and people have, have innovative ways of organizing the same amount of resources that actually make everyone's life better. You know, so think about New York city 150 years ago. Could you imagine having as many people live there today as, as they do? I mean, no, it would be impossible. People would be I mean, killing each other and, and just struggling for survival. Limited resources, right? Right, yeah. it would. L resources are limited. It's a fact. And so so how how have we advanced? Why am I, you know, sitting here looking out the window at, at skyscrapers or at least, you know, DC, DC version, version yeah. of skyscrapers? <laughs> right. Nothing taller um, than the Capitol here, yeah. Right, but, but why is that? It's because we learned how to organize resources in a way that allowed life to flourish for more people. And then I, I realized that that could really apply to the way we think about abortion and some of these arguments that I've heard that if a child is gonna be born into poverty, then, then it would be better for their life to not continue past even being born. And, and that abortion is so good because it is allowing, um, women to work more and it's 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 making poverty actually decline and i'm thinking you know at what cost right at what cost and i'm all about women you know having the equal opportunity to work i'm all, i'm all about that and i think there is just a tragedy written into that narrative that says well it's one or the other and and so so sitting in class kind of going back to this moment and thinking I wonder, you know, people really want to be rich. People want more resources for themselves. And so what if the way that we've been celebrating abortion, you know, based on this, that's threatening our society's long-term well-being and eliminating innovative human assets because that is what's going to keep developing our, our society. And, and so we're actually, by looking at children as liabilities, we're crippling our potential and crippling the possibility of, of better quality of life for each member of society. Yeah, right. There's that tendency that, that folks have uh, to reduce even the human being, every member of the human family to their uh, raw economic potential and the opportunity not, cost, <laughs> right? Not in the way you're talking about where there's like, it's a broad based conception of social capital, right? It's like, you want to talk about how wealthy are we like wealth properly, wholly understood the wealth, uh, monetarily sure, but also the wealth of your neighborhood, your community, your family, your city, your state. 
is there depth there? Are there roots there? If there aren't, you know, you might have more money in the bank account than anyone else in your town. And you also might be the poorest person there. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And it's not a, I don't think it's an argument that is worth the solution we've created of abortion to kill, to kill. I mean, that, that is such an extreme solution and, and it's not even a solution. It causes more pain. It causes, you know, the consequences of, of, um, extramarital sex and relationships sure. to, to, and it, it breaks down responsibility. Spectrum, it right? It's like, it's not, we're not just talking, whatever you think about abortion, right? We're talking about a whole spectrum of issues. They're interrelated issues, uh, that, that go down to, you know, the very end of life, uh, or even the idea of ending your life prematurely. Exactly. Uh, you know, Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg opinion had a piece out recently, which blew my mind that you're making me think of, uh, with this with this line of thinking on you know uh, basically discouraging grandparents or discouraging parents from in, from asking their parents to help with their kids, uh, mm. and the line in here was uh, th- this is the this is the headline: Think twice before asking grandma to be your kid's nanny. And in in the Bloomberg opinion piece, this this is excerpted particularly from their Instagram post actually. So this is just a small bit of the whole thing. They say just because your parents love their grandchildren doesn't mean they should be their babysitter. Uh, filling their days with watching your kids means that they'll miss the chance to pursue other interests, including, uh, more important, at least financially, they may end up foregoing the opportunity to earn money. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it's we, like, <laughs> <laughs> this is not what I mean by the economics of dignity. Right. It's like when, when you're, when you're a grandmother, Anna Claire, right. Do you want to be, do you want to be foregoing the opportunity to earn money? Like, yes. If it's to be able to spend time right, with your, your right. kids and, and grandkids. And that's why when I, you know, when I think about there's the, my future even, and, and wanting to have kids and wanting to be a mom and, and kind of, you know, one and on one hand, culture is saying, you know, you have every opportunity you can climb the ladder empowering women and on the other hand it's not possible if you're a mother i mean in order to actually succeed this is why we have abortion is so that you have act you know you have the same opportunities and and that's just this, yeah. this is this this is the namesake, by the way, of Bloomberg opinion, the news place, Mike Bloomberg, right? Famously, during the 2020 campaign season, it came out that he had told, uh, you know, employees of his, you know, on finding out they were pregnant, you know, quote unquote, just kill it is what was said. And, you know, you, you sort of have to be grateful, at least for the, the directness uh, that folks at that level feel right, at least the ability to speak. Killing, yeah. Right. They're not trying to paper over it, but, you know, that's the raw reality of it. And, and as you're talking about, this economics of dignity thing, I'm thinking of, of some great researchers. You, you're probably familiar with uh, Dr. Tyler Vanderweel at Harvard. Um, they have a great uh, program. Harvard uh, has the Human Flourishing Program at their Institute for Quantitative Social Science. And uh, Dr. Vanderweel there, and there's also uh, Brad Wilcox at the Institute for Family Studies and uh, Dr. Catherine Bacalic at Catholic University. Mm-hmm. Yep. All coming at these issues, right, and trying to answer the same things, which is, you know, what is, what is affluence properly understood? What is it doing? Yeah. So, so one thing that really has motivated this study, and it's something that I'm, I'm hoping to continue to develop along with some of the researchers you just mentioned. I mean, they've, they've really blazed the way and are looking at um, fertility rates and, and kind of this breakdown of expectations of what a family is like you're talking about. I mean, who is going to care for elderly parents if we're below the replacement rate of, of population? I mean, we're looking at some really big problems here and the consequence is 
just a completely shifting view of what the family is. And, but okay, back to my point, I (laughs) got distracted, but (laughs) what really drove this is, is looking at, for example, a big global NGO nonprofit, um, like the Gates foundation or something. And they're, they're pushing for abortion to be part of kind of humanitarian aid programs in Africa specifically. And they're looking at people who, you know, these cultures, yes, they have, they have struggles. Their lives look a lot different than ours in the U S but these billionaires are deciding that a child is better off being aborted than being born into this culture that that person does not even understand. And, and chauvinistic. Yes, it's, it's, it's this idea of philanthropic racism that has been spoken. Yes. Yes. And so, and so I'm just, I'm kind of looking at it saying, you know, why are we worried about population control? If economics says that, that ideas and, and innovation and the value that a person adds through their creativity, through their personality, through their relationships is actually what has gotten us to the mm. place where we are today. That's such a good point. And, and here's here's actually some economic truth, right? Here's some some facts, which is if you average out the economic growth, like like it, as in the ups and the downs, right? The peaks and the valleys, and you sort of get this average for the past hundred years. You know what it tracks pretty well with population growth. It means that people, right? Like people is our productivity. Exactly. That's what sets us apart. So the people saying that for that, that we need to do it, such intense population control where people who aren't concerned about the demogra- demographic death knell that mm-hmm. we're on, uh, they don't understand that without people, there is no economy. The global economy will reflect that. Yeah. yeah. And and you see it in China. I mean, right. yeah, absolutely. China oh enacted one and two child policies over the past, Japan. what, 30 40 years and they're facing economic, I mean, it's hard to see at this moment, but I've read article after article of kind of impending doom for Chinese um, economy because the infrastructure of the family is, is, is depreciating. I mean, it's, it's, it's falling apart and, and they're not, you know, what do you do with the parents who don't have a child to take care of them? What do you do with all of the jobs that are empty? And, and it's just, I hope that we learn from that. You know, I hope that we start to shift our our view of children and family from convenience and control to, you know, children are gifts. They have value to add. This is an asset to my life and my family and the world instead of a liability. It sounds trite, but they are literally the future, right? Without them, there yes, is no future. Right. Without yeah. enough of them, there is no future. Right. We need to help too, I think, develop as a part of this idea of the economics of dignity, you know, sort of an ethics of philanthropy too, because when it comes to the Gates folks or, you know, pick your, you know, billionaire, uh, where are the questions, you know, who are the people advising them on what's proper to do? Is there even an idea that there are limits? I mean, ethical limits as to what they should do. I mean, when they come into, you know, a place like Nigeria and just boldly say, we'll give you certain types of aid if you transform your culture in ways that we've decided from our palatial estates in Palo Alto or, or, you know, wherever in California, that this is how your people should live now. 
there, there's no, you know, it's, it's this problem, right? Because it's on the one end, it's like the conservatives and libertarians look at that and they say, well, you know, private citizens and private groups can do what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like that to me seems like an area where if, if they can't properly regulate themselves, that government or someone should be stepping in to help protect vulnerable people. It's, it's, it's predatory, uh, it's predatory philanthropy. Yeah. Well, what I, I guess my hope is that, you know, here we're talking about not only changing the law, but changing hearts and minds. And this is where, you know, this is what we're doing today is, is talking about, wow, these, these big philanthropies who, who have billions of dollars in backing and who no one's really going to question who's the one standing up. And, and that starts, I don't, I, I don't have the answer on what, especially the U S government should do about that. But, but as individuals, what are we, are we even paying attention? Do we care? Are we, are we going to, to defend individuals at home and abroad from, like you said, what what did you call it? Philanthropic racism. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's a big thing that this is so futuristic and, Mm. and, and it's eugenics. It's, it's, it's saying, I'm going to come and help you deplete your culture because it is, it's not valuable. Well, we've talked about before, Noah, that, you know, Elon Musk, Jack Moss, some of the rare elites at that level who've said openly, you know, that, you know, Musk was in a panel and he said, you know, people keep talking to me about how the Western democracies can just continue to import immigrants, you know, because there's the, the birth rate problem in those countries. He says, we're running up against a problem. Immigrants from where? Yeah. You know, if mm-hmm. we impose these population controls in countries that are growing the most in African nations, import. in India, right? Yep. Yeah. His point is, where, where do people think they're going to come from? And he said over and over again that population collapse is going to be one of the big problems of the 21st century. I think relating to this too, this economics question, Anna Claire, you're not, I think, talking right about like one of the classic things from like Cato Institute and elsewhere is we hear, you know, some of these things come out and it's like uh, human human flourishing is so much more attainable now because, you know, look at the price of a refrigerator today versus (laughs) 30 years ago. Or it's sort of this idea that like the poor today are really wealthy when you compare it to whatever. whatever This is one of Tom's favorite topics. He hates that people's standards of living has risen. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's it's a rejection of the GDP model of human happiness, right? right? It's like like material prosperity matters, but like we, we make a big mistake, right? Don't we? When we think that that's all that matters. It's like now because I have a fridge, you know, where the freezer's on the bottom and it's got two doors at the top, like I'm living. <laughs> it's like, I mean, okay, yes. what's the rest of your life look like? Right. And that's, that's why I think when I look at the arguments that I see from the scholastic community who's supporting abortion and celebrating the way that it's decreasing poverty. And even there's a really famous paper um, by John Donahue and Steve Levitt that's been, that's become really popular. It's called the impact of legalized abortion on crime. And, and it, you know, I think there's flaws in the study, but yeah, it's a super it, controversial paper. It's a super about, controversial yeah. paper, but they basically display and, and run this regression that shows, you know, abortion decreases crime and, and they're still what, what ignoring they the cost. That, Anna Claire, but what, what do they mean when they they're say saying abortion that they're saying crime? that if someone has, they're saying it basically if someone not saying someone they're saying if a certain type of person if a certain type yeah. of person yes if we allow them to grow up there's going to be problems so we should just eliminate them right and and 
And that is often, that's often minorities and people in poverty. And it's where Planned Parenthood does their most business. It is, it is. So to your question, it's so much more, you know, this idea of human flourishing is so much more than GDP. I mean, it is. It's that, it's that different response, right? It's like, instead of saying, how can we share abundance? The response is, how can we help people eliminate more of their own? Mm. It's so, it's inverted. It's so inverted. Yeah. It, and, and I think that we promulgate scarcity, <laughs> right? And, right. And we, yeah. Is that bizarre? Yeah. We miss the chance. Mm. We miss the chance to, to affirm people in, you know, pa- Paul Miller, he has a great, a great, um, book. He kind of does these, these welfare type studies that, that actually just affirm the responsibility and capability of someone who's under the below the poverty line temporarily um and gives them kind of an investment to help to to not even help them but to just like literally give the responsibility back to this person and say you you are capable you and your community are are capable of coming up with ideas to help each other and 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 really create flourishing wherever you are i mean i mean of course material things like education and and you know food are important those things are so important but it looks different for our culture it looks different for these cultures in africa who maybe we don't understand what their standard of of you know the good life is and and the way that their cultures interact and and i think we're just simplifying it to a point that is so oh yeah that's denying the uniqueness and individuality and and if, if we yeah. value like a truly thriving planet and a truly thriving global set of cultures, like it doesn't mean for, forming every culture, every nation into sort of like the, the most soulless version of a Western democracy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Even the American dream looks so different for, for so wow. many different people. That's good. We're going to end on that note because that's a beautiful note <laughs> on the <laughs> American you. dream. And I, I, the, you're, you're an optimistic person, Anna Claire. It makes, makes me optimistic for the future every week on life, liberty, and law. Your weekly shot of gratitude. Uh, we talk about something we're grateful for. You know it. You've got to sit in on episodes, be a part of it, uh, help write episodes. And Claire, what is something that you are grateful for? You know, I am so grateful for my family because thinking about these issues, it always comes back to the family for me. And I think that's where we have to start. Um, if you are in a position where, you know, you're fired up like me and, and you're you're looking at you know, how, how dark some parts of the world are and, and how dark our hearts can be. I mean, start with your home and start with your family because this is where we affirm life in the most personal and up close and consistent way. So, so thankful for the examples that I've seen of that and experienced. 100%. Noah, how about you? What's something you're grateful for? Uh, you know what, Tom? I, I'm grateful for the diversity of experiences we get to have in America. You know, Anna Claire's from Alabama and they got to come here to DC. It's different, different time. I'm from Missouri and then I lived in DC and I live back in Missouri, but to get, get, get to still come here. And it's truly, you know, just when you, when you put America in the scope of the world, it's like all of our states are like different countries in so many ways. There's, there's, true. So, there's such a uh, diverse set of experiences that we all get to get to be a part of together while still being American. And that's the part we need to hold on to. So I'm grateful for the diversity of our country. Tom, how about you? What's something you're grateful for? You know, uh, FDR uh, was quoted once saying that in politics, nothing happens by accident. He said, if it happens, you can bet it was planned that way. 
Uh, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that truth telling from uh, from an Amer- American president. And I think you know at American Center for Life, I'm grateful to uh, to be able to work with folks like you, Anna Claire, and and so many have come in and out over the years and gone on to all the different parts of American side. We've got you know, we we're just talking recently about Dan McConkey, you know, out in Chicago now, who's doing great things. And Dan's an example, somebody who started at the activist level and is now working to shape uh, state legislation uh, at the highest level in Illinois. And uh, you know, if we want to achieve good things, we gotta we gotta work at it. It Starts in the home, uh, and then it radiates out into public uh, public life. And uh, point, we've got to do it very good intentionally. Mm. That's right. All right, Anna Claire, thanks so much for your service to America's Center for Life. We look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much. Me thank too. You, thank you, Anna Claire. Thank you for being here all summer. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right. If you enjoyed our show today with Anna Claire, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to the show. Rate it and leave a review. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for Anna Claire or for us, just email us at life at aul.org. You can also visit our website if you want to follow in Anna Claire's footsteps. Look for the Work With Us tab and find out how you can become involved with Americans United for Life. I am Tom Shakely, and until next time, thank you for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.